Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, brought to you by Carvana. We sell cars, but we are not car salesmen. Featuring International Tennis Hall of Famer, former world number one, Mats Vlander, and Texas Longhorn all-time great, two-time All-American Johnny Levine. Your host of KickServeRadio.com is Andy Zoden. So, take it away, AZ. Welcome, everybody, to KickServeRadio.com. We are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. The KickServeRadio.com team is comprised of seven-time Grand Slam champion, former number one in the world. He is the International Tennis Hall of Famer, Mats Vlander. We are also joined by one of the great Texas Longhorns of all time, two-time All-American, Johnny Levine. I am Andy Zoden. There is lots to get to tonight, boys. They say everything's bigger in Texas, and the semifinals of the Dallas Open was certainly indicative of that. We'll get to the longest tiebreaker ever played in ATP singles history. We're going to talk about a couple of players that are on the verge of retirement. We're going to talk about the Arizona Tennis Classic as that draws near, as does Indian Wells. Lots on the docket. But let's start with this. Speaking of gentle giants, it sounds, gentlemen, as though we have potentially seen the last of the great Juan Martin Del Potro, who it seemed recently as though we may be seeing a comeback. We hadn't seen much of him since 2019. Sounded like he was going to come back for the Argentina Open. He played around. Now it seems like retirement is imminent Matt, let's talk about Juan Martín del Potro because there's different ways to look at this career. Would you say that this is a guy that got the most out of his career or got plenty out of it? Or is this, to some extent, with as talented as he is and was, to some extent, maybe disappointing? Um, Andy, I would think that I would call... If, I, if he hadn't been injured so much, I would have said his career was slightly disappointing. Because uh, I think he was that good. Um, I think he had a different style of game than obviously the big four at the time. Uh, he brought a completely different problem to the court with the big serve and the big forehand. And then the, the reach, obviously, the, the big four at the time, they were all great movers and great defensive players. And then Del Potro comes in. But the difference was that he had a mindset that he was as good as those guys. And I think he actually was for the matches that I saw when he was really fit. He was, he was absolutely brilliant. And then the best part about him is that he actually came back and had a great second career without the two-handed backhand. And if you're that talented and if you're that driven and willing to change your game to that point and still keep trying, I think you show that you had the hunger and the drive and the motivation and the ability to actually break in. And, and I will stand uh, very strongly at he would have won four or five majors. I really do think so. Just brilliant, brilliant tennis player. Really nice guy. Absolutely massive game. Uh, and um, be- believed he belonged. Johnny, this guy won just under 72% of his matches all time. Uh, 22 career titles. In 2009, beats Federer in the finals of the U.S. Open. Some people may forget, beating a doll in the semis of that tournament. He became the first player to beat those two in the same major. Your thoughts on Juan Martín del Potro's career disappointment, or is this one of the guys that really had a great career, all things considered? 
Yeah, Juan Martin Del Potro is is definitely up there as far as maybe having the greatest forehand in men's tennis. It could be. I'd like Matt's thoughts on it later. Uh, one of the greatest forehands we've ever seen. And it is unfortunate that he didn't have more slams to his name. The injuries definitely played a part. But when you talk about a guy that's come back from injuries and fought tooth and nail to get back, which he did, and showed such heart and, and resilience, it's really remarkable. I mean, that really, to me, is what stands out in his career over the U.S. Open was the fact how he fought back from injury and got back to the top 10 in the world. It is a shame, though, that it is did get cut short and, it, and he did have to deal with the injuries because I think if you took a poll from the players, I'd love to see what the, who they would say had the biggest forehand of all time in the last 10 years because I think there'd be a high percentage that would go with Del Potro. That, that shot was really, really something else. And um, But I think what everyone will remember most about him is his character and his good sportsmanship. And um, obviously that U.S. Open win against Federer was, um, is, is what he'll be remembered for, too. Matt, I think that, uh, you know, Johnny's right. The, the forehand was not only huge, but it almost became a stroke model for what a lot of coaches were teaching their players to, to kind of lift that racket up real nice and high. He seemed like he had real easy power. I mean, now obviously he's a, he's a very, you know, big, long, lanky guy. Kind of, it seemed like he maybe put on a little bit of weight, put on a little bit of muscle before he really started making his way into the top 10. But this is a guy, you mentioned the Davis Cup. He comes from two sets down in that decider, if memory serves, against Marin Cilic to win that Davis Cup. Seems like he had some some of his biggest wins were against Federer. But, but let's go back to Johnny's point with that forehand. That was just one of the more effortless, probably deceiving weapons on tour. It didn't look like he was bringing as much lumber as he was. And that probably caught some people off guard, I would think. I was the Davis Cup captain for the Swedish team when Juan Martin was 18, 19 years old. And I remember watching Robin Söderling and uh, Juan Martin play, I think it was the first day in Sweden on the indoor court. And I could not believe how hard these guys were hitting the ball and especially on the forehand side. And in those days... Del Potro's two-handed backhand was actually what everybody was talking about because it was so smooth. And his forehand was a little, a little shaky early on in his career. And I, I mean, I would say it was most probably shaky because I don't necessarily agree with trying to teach that forehand. As okay. I like the backswing. I wasn't never a big fan of his of his foot stance, like he didn't step into as many as he could have. But I think because of the wingspan and the leverage that he created with that wide uh, backswing of his on the forehand, I, I think he was able to generate that power anyway. Uh, I do believe his forehand got a lot better. I mean, it was good against Federer in the U.S. Open final. Federer kept hitting inside-in forehands to Del Potro's forehand, and Del Potro would just just sort of fold his arm out and just whack it cross court. And I think it's, it became a better shot uh, after a while, but in the beginning it was a big serve, very solid two handed backhand, never sliced it early on. And then of course the forehand was always good, but I think he's one of those players that he learned how to, how to, how to 
hide his back and a little bit when he started getting injured with with some wrist injuries and uh, and he developed this forehand where he would hit the ball harder a little bit sooner in rallies which he didn't when he was younger so uh, he just allowed I think um, his game to develop in a way that that suited his uh, his physicality and his size on the court always a great sportsman very well liked on the tour I will remember the loss to Rafael Nadal I believe it was 9-7 in the fifth a few years back in the semifinals of Wimbledon and we will remember Juan Martin Del Potro very fondly the history books will reflect on him very favorably for having a great career you think of his career and you don't think of a guy that only made the final of two majors you think of him of having much more of an effect on the game and I agree with Matt's that had it not been for the injuries, this guy probably would have been much more of a disruptor to the big three or four with regard to that overall slam count. Okay, when we come back, uh, let's talk about that Dallas Open. What we saw from uh, Opelka and Isner, well, if you were going to have the longest tiebreaker in the history of men's tennis, who better to have it than Opelka and Isner? When we come back, we'll talk about that, the Arizona Tennis Classic, and a lot more. On kickserveradio.com, we're part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's Vlander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt's Vlander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis, And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with Mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Mats, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MatsVLanderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Matt Lander, Johnny Levine, Andy Zoden. Johnny, I know you're getting excited about the Arizona Tennis Classic brought to you by Carvana, and probably a tournament that would be whetting everybody's appetite would have been this Dallas Open, which 
Riley Opelka just won. And really the highlight of that tournament was a two-set semifinal, a two-tiebreak semifinal that uh, that Opelka would beat Isner. And you know that those people in Dallas are, are no dummies. They knew that they were going to see a serve fest when they drove in to an indoor court to watch Riley Opelka and John Isner square off. And uh, they did not disappoint. 7-6-9-7-7-6-24-22. Opelka takes out Isner. That's a pretty good field for that Dallas Open. And uh, and to see Riley Opelka come out on top and win that, that's a good win for the young American. Yeah, and he's had some success in the past. I think he's got a winning record against Isner. I don't know that Isner has even beaten him uh, be interesting to look that statistic up, but but Opelka always seems to play well against him. Isner was was in his hometown, even though I believe he was living in Atlanta, and and uh, but now has moved to Dallas, so he's got a nice following there. He's doing a lot in that community, so he had his home crowd there. So really, a, a great victory for for Opelka to to fight off Isner and the home crowd, but. Uh, you know, when Opelka is hitting that serve and he's on an indoor court um, and he doesn't have to really play too many long rallies, he is one of the most dangerous players on tour. Um, and he certainly was in the right mindset this week because he, he seemed under control. He seemed very poised and, um, you know, handled Isner and then obviously handled Brooksby, who had beaten um, Opelka the first time they played and beaten him badly. So for him to come back and get that victory, uh, in the final was was fantastic for for Opelka. Great for American tennis mats because you've got four Americans in the semis. Obviously, we talk about Opelka playing Isner on one side. The other side is is Jensen Brooksby, and he beat Marcos Giron, who had taken out uh, Taylor Fritz earlier in the tournament in a crazy semi as well as that one swung wildly back and forth with Brooksby taking a commanding 6-4-4-1 lead, letting that break get away. Jerome winning that second set in a breaker, getting four match points in the third at 5-6. And that's where it got kind of weird. I, the guy was playing such solid, smart tennis. He was playing aggressively, but he was keeping the ball in the court. And suddenly it came time to convert a couple of match points, and, and he missed badly. Yeah. I mean, he took risks on those match points that were completely unnecessary. And, and he took risks where obviously he's got a great forehand. He's got a great backhand as well. He's got beautiful ground strokes. He moves great. Uh, and I think that he most probably uh, would learn from this match that he doesn't have to play uh, outside of his comfort zone. He doesn't have to take these risks as he moves well. He's strong in the corners. He can hit from both sides, not necessarily hit winners from both sides from anywhere, but but really, really solid. Looks like he's very talented. He looks like he has really good hands. He understands the game. And somehow I think that maybe uh, the confidence wasn't quite there uh, or the the understanding that he was actually in control of this match. And if he could just kept it together, he would win nine out of ten uh, 10 matches if he plays like that. And for some reason, he thought he needed to do more than than uh, than he needed to. Is it Brooksby uh, that drives people crazy to hit those shots? Maybe a little bit, but um, I don't think so. I think Jerome, yeah, he beat himself there. But on the other hand, should he have ever come back in that match? Maybe not. Um, so I really like Jerome. I like watching him. He's He's flashy at times. He's hit some beautiful little drop shots and he was using the whole court and a lot of variety. And I think that's his game. I think it's very fluid. 
and he just has to play within himself and and not and not go crazy. So uh, I think he's there to stay. He would have learned a lot, but isn't it also typical that someone like like uh, Jensen Brooksby, who obviously is a genius on the tennis court, I think, similar to what Daniil Medvedev brings to the court, which is completely unorthodox. We don't see those kind of players. The other players don't see those players and most probably don't like playing him except the serve. I think that the players will eventually understand that, okay, the serve needs to just get back uh, into play with my return. I can be aggressive at times, but I don't have to worry about it. And the problem they have early on with someone like, like Brooksby is – um, is they don't know what to do with the return. But I always bring up Miroslav Mechir, the great Slovak um, Olympic gold medalist in Seoul, Korea in 1988, by the way. I realized after a while, you can't do anything with the service return against him, but you cannot miss it. And I think that's what players would realize. Okay, I mean, every single service game that Brooksby serves, and I just have to figure out a way to not be too passive in my own service games. I think they fall into the trap. Question to me and to you is, will Brooksby be a better player, win more, if his serve was bigger? Or would he lose some of that rhythm that he builds up because he doesn't play short points, not even in his own service games? That's a question to both of you. Well, I think personally that it, it, it never hurts to be able to win some free points on serve. You mentioned uh, uh, the big cat, uh, Miloslav Mechir, and he was, he was, he was Vlander Kryptonite, let's face it. But the thing that I want to ask you before we move on off of Brooksby, before I go to you, Johnny, is the gamesmanship, Matt, because this just suddenly came out of nowhere. The banging the racket, the flailing of the arms, the things that, that Paul Anacone was a bit of an apologist it seemed like he didn't want to make a big deal of it he felt like this is a matter of having one conversation that this is a good guy that people like and he doesn't know better do you buy that I mean yes I'm surprised that he that he uh, wouldn't have known that you're not allowed to to intentionally distract your opponent but but I mean distracting your opponent it you can go left and then go right as he's hitting, but they have to be normal movement moves. You can't wave your arms or smash a racket, but with your body and your feet, you can always, you know, take a risk and fake this way and fake the other way and, and therefore put your opponent off. But yeah, I think I'm actually agreeing with Paul Anacone. I think a conversation and he would get that, but I think the competitor in him is, is, uh, First of all, he, he absolutely loves to compete, obviously. He's a winner. Uh, he wins a lot of close matches. Um, I, I don't really think he chokes yet. He might later in his life, but I don't think so. Uh, and I think it just gets overexcited. I really think it was an overexciting uh, excitement thing. And I think, yeah, if you Paul Anacone would talk to Brooksby, he would tell him, I don't think Brooksby would ever do anything intentionally to try and distract uh, the player uh, that is outside of the rules. So I think, yeah, he seems like a good guy. Love the way he fights. Uh, and uh, I love the way he plays. I don't know if he's great for American tennis. If Brooksby becomes number one in America, I mean, is he going to transcend the sport into into the, the living room of kids that haven't picked up a racket? Not necessarily un- until he starts winning Grand Slams. But it's not an easy game to understand if you're if you're a little kid uh, he's not flashy anyway, but um, for us, and I think I speak for you too, 
uh, it's so fun to watch somebody who's solving the problem all the time and, and does hits the right shot nearly every single time. All right, let's go to Argentina, Johnny, because th- that final was two of your faves. I mean, we saw Kasparud for the first time together in Phoenix uh, in, in 2019, and he takes out Diego Schwartzman in the Argentina Open final in three sets. And suddenly, Johnny, you look up, and Kasparud has won six clay court titles in the last couple of seasons. That's twice as many as anybody else on tour, including Rafael Nadal. How pleased are you to see Casper Rude coming along as well as he is. I mean, he's shot into the top 10 like a bullet, but you're also a big fan of Schwartzman. I love Schwartzman and I love how he um, competes and how hard he hits the ball off both wings Uh, for a guy that size. I think it's maybe the most amazing thing on tour right now, a guy five, seven, who's been in the top 10 who's consistently in the top 15 playing against basically giants. Every time he walks on the court, and holds his own and, 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 and hits the heck out of both the forehand and the backhand. I think his forehand is a humongous shot. And I think without it, he would have trouble competing against these guys. I think that forehand, um, like I said, is, is, is the weapon and his, you know, he serves pretty good and he's obviously a great mover, great fighter. Um, but I think he's running into um, a bit of a, a, a problem with a guy like rude who does everything that Diego does, but he's a little bigger, a little stronger. And um, Diego, you know, he can run everything down that Diego hits him. Um, so the clay is, is he's more better suited on clay. Rude is. And Rude is, is, is clearly one of the best clay quarters in the world right now and has to be a favorite to get to the quarter semis, if not the finals of the French Open, which will be very interesting to see. But, you know, look, Diego Schwartzman getting to the finals. They both had one Buenos Aires before. These are tremendous results. And and when you get down to the wire like that, anything can happen. So I'm sure while Diego was disappointed not to get the title, he was also pleased to make the final against such great clay quarters and, um, you know, that are out there. So um, definitely be interesting to see how Rude does at the French Open. He'll be definitely right there and how fun you guys was it to watch that match the crowd was absolutely going nuts uh and i think that's what diego does i agree johnny he he brings you along for this for this physical emotional ride where they know he ain't quitting ever and i think it's easy to back him whether they believe he was going to win or not i think they were very they were so excited just to back an argentinian player and I think he's absolutely brilliant. And I agree, the forehand is huge. His backhand, though, on the other hand, he hits the ball so clean. I don't think there's a backhand out there that hits the ball cleaner than Diego. And most of them, he's not even on the ground. I mean, he's up in the air hitting that backhand. So his timing is absolutely brilliant. Has he gotten the most out of his game since David Ferrer? I actually start start thinking that, that he has reached his potential and overachieved big time for the size that he is because it is a little bit of a um, a big disadvantage to never, ever, ever get a free point on your first serve. Well, I will say this, Johnny. um, Diego Schwartzman owes you because I stood next to him uh, at a party in New York, and I'm 5'7", and I towered over the guy. I was a good half to three-quarters of an inch taller, I feel certain. Now, maybe it was the shoes we were wearing. Matt, can Casper Rude win a major? I mean, he reminds me temperament-wise – 
of the great Mats Vlander. He's he's got ice water in his veins. He's got the big he's got the big game, but he's got the patient big game. And I think Johnny makes a, a, a great point when he talks about the quarters of the French. I'm thinking, geez, I you know I, I'm thinking that final is realistic, and and maybe you know maybe that's the first place that guy finally wins one. I mean, is it is he that good? He is that good. I thought he was going backhand down the line a little more than he normally does. Uh, I do think that his backhand uh, needs to be a better shot than when he runs around and hits his forehand from outside the left doubles line because that forehand is obviously a great forehand, but from where he hits it, it's not very effective. And I think a clean backhand quite aggressive is going to be a way more effective shot and you cannot beat Rafael Nadal if you hit forehands from outside the tram lines in your backhand corner you can't do that you got to stay stay in your backhand corner and you got to be able to defend your forehand corner so he's on his way he's uh he's improving every time I see him and now watching him on play compared to uh on the hard courts or indoors at the end of last year He's a much better clay court player than he is on the other surfaces. And I'm sure he will become a better player on everything. But but on clay, yes, he five sets against Kasper Ruud. If you're not playing well, you're going to have to do a lot of running. So I do believe that he has a very good chance of winning the French Open before he's done. I really do. When we come back, lots more to get to. And I will just start by saying this. If Matteo Berrettini is looking for a career after tennis, it might just be in politics. More on that when we come back on kickserveradio.com and we are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. Final segment, Matt Svielander, Johnny Levine, AZ, and I'm, I teased that if Matteo Berrettini was looking for a career uh, after tennis, I know that everybody's thinking, you know, underwear model, you know, Hugo Boss model, something that puts him on billboards, which he's already on billboards all over the place in Italy. When you look, you see these these big Hugo Boss billboards and and uh, we mentioned Paul Anacone earlier, but he made a great comment. How'd you like to look at that billboard on the way to the match where you have to play the guy? That might be a little bit intimidating. But when he was asked who is greater between Nadal and Djokovic, he was not willing to go there. He basically said there's no answer to that. He talked about the differences in the way both of those two have kind of owned him, but he was not willing to go there with regard to who is the greater player talked about Nadal being able to jerk you all over the court and the way Novak Djokovic, as he terms it, just completely deactivates you. Uh, not a bad way to play it on Berrettini's part. Do you agree, Matt? I do agree. Yeah. And I like that he tried to explain the difference between the two styles. And I think that that's very important for people to realize, which is why it's so hard to compare who's the greatest player of all time, no matter what the statistics say. But I think what they both have in common uh, and what Matteo Berrettini has 
uh, problem is that he has a weakness on one side. And Federer, uh, Novak, and Rafa, they are so good at exposing your weakness. If you have one, you are in serious trouble against those three. Compare that to when they maybe play against a Alexander Zverev or these days against Daniel Medvedev, where they're having uh, bigger problems because Medvedev doesn't really have a weakness. But when you have one, uh, they really know how to expose that weakness in a similar way. Different shots that go into that side, but they they will, will literally turn Matteo Berrettini into a very mediocre tennis player off of his weakness, which is obviously the, the two-handed backhand. So I, I agree with him. I mean, at some point, I'd be so happy we don't have to talk about it again. I'd like to see the, the three of them win a couple more majors, though, now that Rafa is back in business. Johnny, as Matt was talking about the big three being able to expose Berrettini's weakness, it got me thinking, is it possible that the big three not only expose a weakness – but they literally are able to create a weakness that you didn't even know was there. I feel like when you would watch Nadal play Federer, Federer didn't realize how much of a weakness the high backhand was until Nadal was sure to point it out for him. When you and I watched Berrettini play at your tournament, I didn't see that backhand as a weakness when he was playing against the players at that level, maybe when you get out there against those big three, I mean, if there's just an absolute inkling of doubt in anything in your game, it suddenly becomes much bigger than you even realized. Yeah. Your weaknesses um, at different levels will not get exposed until, you know, depending on the level that you are until you get to the highest level. So a guy like Berrettini, who's six, seven in the world, you'd think, How's anyone going to expose the weakness? Well, you get to the top three guys and they're going to find that. And that backhand, like Matt said, breaks down against those guys uh, in the big moments, in the big matches. And it's not a real solid shot. Now, it doesn't you don't see that as much against some of the you know lower ranked players that he's playing against. Uh, he does have a nice chip. But a chip is not going to win you matches. A chip is going to let you hang in there and 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 be steady. But in the end, you know, you got to have you got to hit over that ball, especially you know guys coming in net. You got to be able to pass with it. And I do think that 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 backhand under pressure breaks down against these top guys, and and it is a weakness. Uh, he's got to improve the backhand. The serve is while it's unorthodox, it, it's a humongous serve. The forehand is fantastic. He's a tremendous athlete. He's big, he's strong, he can move. I would think that he should be hitting a thousand, if not more, backhands a day and just grinding that shot to get it to get it to a higher level. He he certainly can. His stroke isn't is, is not bad. He just needs to improve the shot. Matt, what made me think of even asking Johnny that question goes back to some of the things that you have said on this show concerning your career. That when you sort of came back. Uh, and, and, you know, and all of a sudden there was Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi. You suddenly felt some doubt because you felt that the game had changed a little bit. And looking back on it now, you've kind of felt like maybe you wish you had maybe done a little bit more to try to combat that. But that at the time it seemed pretty daunting. And was that something that that really got inside your head? Maybe more than the actual physical mismatch. There was just the perception of that. Absolutely. I mean, I was 
I came back in uh, 1995 after a couple of years off the tour and I made the semis of the Canadian Open and I beat Wayne Ferreira along the way, who was top 10. I beat Yevgeny Kafelnikov along the way, who was top 10. And I was slicing the backhand and coming in a little more than I normally would. And I, and I, like, I can't believe I beat those guys, but I got a, a, so much confidence from I'm back. And then I get on the court with Andre Agassi and that slice does absolutely nothing except put me in such a defensive position on the court uh, immediately. One slice to Andre's backhand and suddenly I'm defending completely. And I think that's the difference between even someone like Yevgeny Kafelniko who won a couple of majors and, and, and Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras. They, just, they wouldn't let you get away with that. Uh, and I think it has to do with they're, they're more complete, but they're also willing to take the path that is less comfortable for them, but hor- horribly uncomfortable for their opponent. And I think that's what Nadal and Djokovic and Federer are willing to do as well. It's, it's uh, you know, they play great matches and they're great players, but, but the matches we never talk about are the ones when they, they literally just expose the weakness of their opponent. And it's not a necessarily great match, but they get their opponent to play such a mediocre level of tennis that there's no way they're losing to this guy. So I think Berrettini, it's interesting how we talk about Juan Martin del Potro uh, in his second part of his career. And then you look at Matteo Berrettini. There's definitely a little bit of a, uh, a similarity there. And I think people go and watch Matteo Berrettini for the same reason they, they went and watched del Potro. The forehand is something that you don't see from the regular tour player. Uh, the serve is, in Bertini's case anyway, but even in Del Potro, it's not something that every tour player has. Uh, and then they got a great attitude, good-looking guys, big on court, seem pretty calm, uh, very much in the present moment. And I think Bertini has filled that void that Del Potro uh, has left. I really believe that because there is no other player that plays tennis the way Bertini plays out there with that weakness on the backhand that turns into the chip and coming in and, and, and he can play on all the different surfaces because he's, he's willing um, to, to play that kind of game and he's waiting to get the forehand. So I think there's a lot of similarities. I don't know if Matteo Berrettini will ever win a major. Uh, it's close. I think it'd be close. I think he'll make a few finals, uh, a few more finals, I should say. I don't know what surface it might be on that he wins one, but I, there is a chance that he'll win one or two, but that depends on Zverev and Medvedev and Augier Aliasim. It depends on their mindset. Are they willing to fall into the trap and watch Berrettini play tennis, or are they are they going to just go to the backhand and say, you know what, Matteo, this is not good enough at this level. I haven't seen that from the three of them yet, but uh, I'm sure they'll get to something like that. But they'll never get to the Djokovic and Nadal. Uh, way of of destroying your weakness. There was somebody that was going to be able to fill the big shoes left behind by Juan Martin Del Potro. That's a great point. It, let it be Matteo Berrettini. Johnny, um, maybe what's happening with Serena Williams is exactly what we're talking about. Maybe doubt has crept in. Maybe she's worried that now that she is where she is in life, there's really not a place for her to be able to go out on the tour and be considered among the favorites at any of these majors. And maybe that reality has kicked in because she is now talking about retirement more seriously than she ever has. 
And maybe the recent retirement of Tom Brady makes her feel like she's in good company if she's to step aside as well. It's not a big reach to assume that when she talks about wanting to be a good mom and wanting to expand her family and be a wife and do other things in life, that we should not just take that at face value. She's almost 40 years old. And we saw her in her last tournaments that she played. I didn't think she looked like she was in the best condition. And with the player field as deep as it is now, the strength of the women's game, um, you know, Serena Williams, obviously with that, you know, insane serve as a weapon and her ability to, to overpower players, it, it just makes it's just difficult now for her to do that, especially if she's just not in top condition. I think, uh, I think it could be over for her. I really do, unfortunately. Matt, when I Google pictures of you and results of you, all these little hidden secret, I, I saw you on the court with Pat Cash and Martina Hingis and, and Anna Kornikova one time and all these different incredible exhibitions and things that you've played anything with Serena that that you've been on the court with her for I have never been on the court with Serena I have interviewed her a bunch of times uh at one-on-one interviews right after winning the U.S. Open uh we would always go on uh, the day after on on um, Sunday morning before the men's final and they would have something at where whoever was the sponsor if it was uh, JP Morgan or whoever was sponsoring the women's event. And she would always go there and she'd have a little press conference. And I have to say that it, it wow. was as intimidating as I've ever felt trying to interview anyone. Uh, and she was extremely nice, extremely polite, extremely nice. It really seemed like she, I don't know if she knew who I was, but it seemed like she appreciated that I was there because I was an actual former player and I made the trip and I'm interviewing her. So she gave me a lot of, a, a lot of uh, great answers, very thoughtful answers. But at the same time, I think that's what's gone from her is that we, all, we will remember how she, we think, tried to intimidate her opponents with different ways. Uh, some of it was mentality. Some of it was tactics, just whacking that the second serve return as hard as she could for the first sort of 10 returns and hopefully to scare them off. I haven't seen that lately from her. And I, and I, now that you asked me about my uh, uh, former career and playing days when I got older, that's what I lost. I lost the willingness to just go one-on-one. It's you and I. Let's go. We got six new tennis balls and we're going to go. I can go for three hours. I don't care how long it is. And I feel like Serena uh, is hoping or has been hoping a little bit that her 23 majors – and just the name would win her matches in majors. And that's just not the case anymore. Whether that's her not feeling like she's up for the fight every single time, or if it's the, the youth of the locker room that see Serena as a more of a, a sort of a nostalgic museum piece that why is she still playing? Because her game is not that powerful. I don't know where it is, but that's what she has lost to me. That is so hard to get back. And I don't know if she can hit people off the court seven matches in a row to win a major. I agree with Johnny. I think that's very, very unlikely. If she happens to get to a finals uh, somehow, I think she could still pull it off. But it's the matches leading up to it, second round, third round, fourth round, that these guys, are, their, their players are not that intimidated by 
by her anymore because her game is not that different from someone like Rubakina or some of the bigger hitters on tour. Well, they say it happens in threes, and I say it starts with Tom Brady, and it goes Tom Brady, Serena Williams, Roger Federer, all within a 12-month period. That is my prediction. All right, before we go, it is the Carvana Arizona Tennis Classic, and I know that at this point, Johnny, we still have to kind of hold our cards close to the vest with regard to what the player list looks like. But let's remind people that in 2019, you had Matteo Berrettini win that title. You had David Goffin there. You had Casper Ruud there. You had Lorenzo Sinego there. There was lots of talent in the field. Jamie Murray and Neil Skupski won the doubles. It was a tremendous doubles field. And based on what you have seen, that again, I understand you can't disclose, this field looks every bit as strong and in some respects even more exciting than what you had a couple of years back. We're expecting the majority of the player field to be in the top hundred. If, uh, if not the top hundred, just outside, we, the cutoff should be very close to that, which gives us just tremendous depth in this field for, for a challenger 125. And like we've said in the past, we're pretty confident that this is the strongest player field of any challenger in the world throughout the year. Um, because of our strategic location on the calendar, which is between Indian Wells and Miami, and it being the only other tournament in in the United States at that time, you've got all the players at Indian Wells and some that, that get knocked out prior to the third round don't want to wait around for a couple of weeks to play Miami. They'd like to get another tournament in, and and that's us. So um, we, we've capitalized on that that week and uh, we're fortunate to get the players we get we we will hope to see uh, a handful of american players um and um it should be really really a fun and exciting event close up at the phoenix country club uh, all the seating is is right up on the court on our center court so you're not in a huge stadium far away you get to see it up close and uh, I think that's one of the big advantages. And hope, we're hoping for some good weather, Andy, and, uh, and it should be a lot of fun. Well, and you've upgraded tremendously in one area, and that is that I did most, if not all, of the on-court introductions and post-match interviews. And I will do a lot of the heavy lifting on that again. But this year, you've got Matt Vlander, who's going to be in town, who will be doing lots of different things with the tournament, but not the least of which is we're going to have some pretty fun post-match interviews with Matt's Vlander and some of these players that you've got. Matt's, you looking forward to going down to Phoenix and uh, and being there for your boy Johnny Levine? Oh, it's going to be unbelievable because it, it's true that even I don't get to watch uh, the best players in the world play on outside courts. And I'm not saying that the center court uh, at your place there in, in Phoenix is not a center court. It's a center court, but it would be sort of the third or the fourth uh, biggest court at a place like Indian Wells or at the U.S. Open. But you get to see these best players uh, in the world up close. That's unbelievable. The difference between a guy ranked 30 today and ranked 10 is minimal in terms of the ball striking. And you, and it's really hard to, to unless you know the guy's name, unless you know his ranking. It's no, you can't place him in the rankings if you watch them live because they look like they're world champions. So I think it's fantastic for me to be able to see these some of them young, some of them uh, struggling a little bit, but still have game like a, like a, I'm hoping John Millman shows up. And I, what I like the most, Johnny, is because it's a smaller event, 
you have a chance to have kids come out and sit very close. And it doesn't take much to get a kid motivated and inspired to suddenly use that and take it all the way to the professional ranks. Whereas if you go to Indian Wells and you watch on center court, you're so far away and you don't get the, the vibe in the same way. So I think it's, it's a must for American tennis. Obviously the Dallas Open was great. I love the whole thing there. Maybe a few too many Americans uh, for my liking towards the end. I love that there was four of them. But the crowd didn't really get into it because there was four of them. Hard to root for one or the other. And I think in an event like this, you, likelihood of having an American in, this, in the last four is pretty big. And there's a likelihood that there'll be a couple of international players. So I think the crowd could really get into it in a different way. And, and uh, so go along with the USA, the Olympic slogan that's so the, in these days. Matt Sreelander making a comeback there from what appeared to be some anti-American sentiment. At least that's what I heard. No, not at all. <laughs> so, so Johnny, what, and I'm going to let you have the last word here, but Brad Gilbert made a really good point when we interviewed him in advance of your tournament last time. And he said, you can't overstate the fact that you are going to be put in a position to discover some players, to see some players that are on the brink of breaking through. My wife came down to that tournament and had her picture taken with Matteo Berrettini after winning that tournament. It's still on her phone. Now, I have a picture of her on my phone. She has a picture of Matteo Berrettini on hers. That's beside the point. The fact is, she goes from your tournament in March, where she meets Matteo Berrettini, gets a picture with him. He's 57 in the world. To six months later, she gets invited to New York to go to the U.S. Open, to the semis, where she's in Matteo Berrettini play Rafael Nadal, a four set semifinal at the U S open. So BG was absolutely right. Lorenzo Sonego's done great things since your tournament. Kasparud's done great things since your tournament. Berrettini, we talk about him practically every week. Lloyd Harris. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these guys have just blown up and it started in Phoenix for so many of them. And I think we might have a few more. I mean, we'll be able to talk about the player field next week. Um, I would anticipate some really top young guys, maybe 19, 20-year-old kids that are in the top 100 in the world that are on their way up that uh, you might see in the later rounds of a slam. So um, that will be, we'll see that list. Like I said, you know, hopefully on our next show, we'll talk about some of the player field. John Millman um, is a favorite of mine as well, Matt's the way that guy competes and fights and good sport. And we got to know him and he was a super guy a great pleasure to have in our field. And, uh, you know, we're, we're hoping that he comes back as well. We do get a mix of players from all over the world. Um, like I said, it's, it, you know, it, it attracts that kind of a field. We don't get all Americans, although, you know, we, we do have an affinity for the young Americans and, and it's tough for a lot of them to get in the, the up and coming guys because it's such a tough field, but we do have three wild cards that will hold out, to the end and we do have six wild cards in the qualifying so we will get to be able to make some selections which is which is nice for us and uh we'll look at that hard as we get closer and uh and like i said it's just um there's a lot of excitement there's a lot of buzz about it and part of that buzz is having maths come out a lot of people are awaiting that arrival and looking forward to to getting a, a chance to talk to maths where do you get tickets, Johnny? Where do you go online? Well, you can go to eventbrite.com or you can go straight to our website at arizonatennisclassic.com and there'll be a link to hit 
and it will be able to, it will send you to Eventbrite where you can buy tickets. You can buy uh, the tickets Tuesday through Sunday, and it'll have the sessions on there and the starting times. And um, all proceeds, net proceeds, go to Phoenix Children's Hospital. Matt's talked about having young kids come out and be able to see and get inspired by some of these players. We do have a program where we offer, um, you know, the high school coaches will be able to bring their, their teams out uh, Monday through Thursday, and we we get them out there at no charge, and we're trying to inspire the young kids. And we've got another program where we're uh, working with uh, uh, an organization that helps underprivileged kids. So they'll be out there as well, and we're doing some nice things in, in uh, for the community as far as that goes. But, again, our, our major beneficiary is the Phoenix Children's Hospital. So, um, again, everyone uh, – is looking forward to it and hoping for some good weather. It's always good weather in Phoenix. We just saw it at the, at the waste management open where we saw all kinds of crazy theatrics there. And if the crowd is as wild and nutty as they are in the 16th hole uh, at the waste management open, then we're going to have some serious fun watching tennis. Matt's V-Landers down there. He's going to be wild carded right into the main. I got to play the qualies, but that's okay. I'm just happy to be invited. For Johnny Levine, Matt Svelander, and Andy Zoden, you are listening to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We'll see you at Indian Wells. We'll see you at the Carvana Arizona Tennis Classic, and we'll look forward to seeing you right back here on the show before both of those.